0: Matthew 27. We're going to start there, but we'll be uh, moving around the scriptures quite a bit this morning. So uh, have your fingers at the ready. We're continuing a series. Uh, by the way, if I haven't met you before, my name is Jeremy. Uh, lovely to meet you. I'm one of the elders here at the church as well, and it's my pleasure to bring you this message this morning. Um, Can I pray to start with, because we're doing a little character study in Judas Iscariot, (laughs) which is a tough one, right, on a number of levels. So let's pray as we enter the Scriptures. Heavenly Father, um, we come to your Word. You you give us this Word so that we may know what we need for life and godliness. Lord, we, we know the hard stories are as important as the easier ones to read in some sense, because they teach us something about you, and teach us something about ourselves. Sometimes it's to warn us, Lord, would we be receptive to what your scriptures are teaching us today? We pray this in your beautiful name, amen. We're in a series um, called Watch Your Step, and the idea is it comes out of a Uh, a prophecy that Jesus gives to all of the disciples between when he initiates the Lord's Supper and when he goes to the cross, and he says, all of you will fall away. And Judas is an obvious one that we know of, and we think of Peter, and we can think of of others in it, but he says, all of you are going to fall away, right? When the shepherd is struck, being Jesus, when he's arrested, and then when he goes on to his crucifixion. And what we've we've looked at in the first three weeks is this idea that the disciples are not so different from us. That that when pressure comes on, when testing comes on, when when Jesus isn't popular, when I am in places like Peter where there's a lovely warm fire, but people are going, are you one of them? (laughs) Do you really believe that? Do you really trust what Jesus says about that type of thing? And it's so countercultural. what do we do, you know? There's a temptation for us to not be loyal to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we, wanna, we, we want to be in a space where our hearts are right and then our mouth <laughs> and our actions follow. And you, uh, we saw uh, last week, that, or sorry, two weeks ago, that we defined it in this particular way. That Jesus defined this idea of falling away already in <laughs> the parable of the, of the soils. That there's, there's four different types of soils where this good seed, where God's good seed falls and wants to grow and flourish and fruit. And one of them falls on these rocks. And it says it falls into these rocks, and then trouble or persecution comes. Something comes along that pushes against your faith and, and says, you pull, try and pulls you away. And if you have deep roots, your faith is deep and sure and drawing the nutrients from the place that it should, and God's word is growing in you, then you will stand firm in those times. But when your roots are shallow, trouble, persecution, Right? the raised eyebrow, the little criticism, they get to you. And it might start small, but it eats away and as the pressure builds. So Jesus is saying this because he doesn't want us to be in that space. He wants us to have deep roots. So we come to the story of Judas Iscariot, the hardest one to read of the disciples. And let's read it and think, what is the warning that sits in here? What is the contrast that we see with Judas and some of the others as to what he's saying about how we should act and how we should think? So we're going get, to get right into it, straight into the Scriptures here. Sorry, we're in Luke chapter 22, not Matthew 27. Come to Luke 22. We'll get to Matthew 27 later. Luke chapter 22. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. Okay, so they're coming up to... Uh, what we now know as the Lord's Supper, they were having it as the Passover. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. So, so you can get the environment that's sitting here. Jesus is very popular. He's just come into the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a buzz, right? He hasn't really been there before. Uh, certainly not as this leader and. His excitement. They've heard about all the things that he's been up to and they proclaim him as king one Saturday. So the city is all a buzz about this person, Jesus. But the spiritual leaders can't stand him. They want to get rid of him. But they're afraid of this crowd of people who might riot against him. So they're looking away to get Jesus without it causing too much trouble. It says then, then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were what? Delighted. And it says, and agreed to give him money. So Judas, what's saying there, Judas actually came with an idea, oh, I could get some money out of this if I agree to betray him. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Now, I want to quickly look at at a character in this text that we've just read who plays an integral part in that, and that's Satan, right? And it's interesting, it says Satan entered Judas. Now, there's a passage here that's actually important in our whole understanding of what is going on here that we haven't read so far, and it says this in Luke 22, and I'm going to read it, I'm going to ask you guys what's interesting in this passage, what stands out, because I think there's three or four fascinating things in here. By the way, this is Jesus at the, at the, um, uh, at the Passover meal is when he gives this um, uh, description and prediction, and this is what he says, "'Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail.'" And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. All right, what's interesting in there? Yes, interesting, isn't it? A lot of your translations will have that as singular. Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. And that's how I always read it, right? It's only very recently where I I, I read it in another translation. It said, all of you. So the word is plural, saying Satan wants to attack all of you disciples. So while he's talking to one person, it's actually Satan that's wanting to do do this act. Isn't that interesting? What else is interesting? Jesus praying for us. And what does he pray? Right? He says, he prays that your faith may not fail. He doesn't pray, very interestingly enough, he doesn't pray that the temptation or the test won't come. Can you understand this? It's very important. Jesus is not saying here, I'm going to organize it so that you never go through a test or a trial. He's saying that when tests and trials come, I am praying that your faith may not fail. It's a huge difference. It's a very important difference in understanding in our Christian walk. Because tests come. Troubles come. Persecutions come. Doubts come. Right? Misdeeds come. All of these things come upon us. But what's Jesus praying? Praying your faith won't fail. Your faith won't fail. Praying your faith won't fail. Interesting. Anything else that's interesting in there? A couple of other things, I think. Yeah, good putting your hand up, Glenn. Very nice. Yeah, Satan had to ask for mission. Isn't that interesting? Satan's power is not unlimited. Satan has to request it. Reminds you of the first part of the book of Job, doesn't it? Satan comes in there and goes, see that dude, Job? <laughs> he only follows you because look at all the things that are right around his life. I think a similar thing is, is hinted at here. See all those disciples? It's only because they're following around and following after your miracles and doing all this feeding of the 5,000 and all the stuff that you're kind of seeing. If you, if you put the burner on them, they're gone. That's what he's saying. I want to sift them as wheat. And Jesus is saying to Simon, this is going to happen. The implication here is this is actually important for you because this is a testing of your faith. And even though, in many ways, you're going to fail the test he says, I want your faith to not be destroyed in that process. I don't want your faith to be destroyed in that process. Okay, let's keep moving with that. So this is the, 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 the larger context of what was going on here, that Satan is at work, and he's still at work. And just a quick comment on that idea of Satan. Uh, actually, now I'll come back to that because we'll see it in the next passage. Okay. Let's read our main passage in John twenty-one. Turn over there with me. So this is John's uh, version of telling us about what happens at the, at the Passover meal. John gives us um, this fantastic detail about how he washes the disciples' feet, and um, in this incredible act. Um, Incredible act of love. John Sorry, John Thirteen. Sorry, I, I'm just. I was just thinking of my own head. I'm, I'm writing the wrong passage. It's John Thirteen. The heading is wrong in there. Putting your crook today. It starts at verse twenty-one, not at chapter twenty-one. So he's instructing them on a number of things, and he gets to a point during the Passover meal. and says this, verse 29, After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the, had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. A few things from this text. The first one is Do you notice it says there, Jesus is troubled in spirit? Don't whip over that. You can kind of read the story of Judas Iscariot, and there's parts of it that sort of indicate that he was destined to do what he was going to do. But Jesus is very troubled by people who are away from him, who reject him, who reject his offer of love and grace and forgiveness. It troubles him. He was troubled in his spirit. And the fact that it was very one of his own, one of these 12 who he had especially chosen to to disciple and bring up and continue on the the work of his kingdom in the the church, the fact that it's one of them that he had given so much of his life to must have been so deeply troubling for him. It's quite extraordinary that it says that second point is interesting, though. When he says one of you is going to betray me, (coughs) they don't go, oh, well, of course, it's that shifty. I do, Judas. (laughs) Yeah, he's got the money bag and he's doing all those kinds of things. They all go, is it me? One of the other gospels says, it says one after one, they all went, could it be me? So they say, on one hand, they're going, no, it's not me. But on that hand, they're thinking, oh, I wonder if it's... The point, though, is this, is that Judas, even though they lived closely and intimately for three years, he did not somehow stand out in some phenomenal way. And I think that's important for us to consider and to think about. Because it's very easy to live Christianese, if I can say that. I grew up in the church, I know the language, (laughs) I know the behaviors, I know what you're meant to say at the right time, you learn these things, but in my late teenage years, when I was, started when I was at high school and went into my first year of university, I knew where and when to do it, but my heart was nowhere near Jesus Christ. So it was very easy for me to be out on a Saturday night partying and drinking with my rugby mates because that's whose attention I wanted. That's who I needed to get approval from. And I'd be there on Sunday morning and you would know no difference. It's hard, isn't it? See, when we're talking about this, and we're talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus is not talking about the behaviour that you do in the places where you know you, you need to perform. Jesus is interested in who are you when you are alone with Him. Who are you then? What are you resting on and trusting? Will you think that you can rock on up to Jesus one day? And you know, I went. You, you saw me in church, Jesus. <laughs> You saw me say the right prayers, and you saw me take communion. And do, he, he, you know, there's that frightening one away from me. I don't know you, and you don't know me. The basis of it is this relational idea, and the behavior comes out of the relationship, not the other way around. And so we see here in this story of Judas is that we have to be careful in this space of checking our heart with it, because we can we can get into this, and I know this mindset, right? I'm okay because because the people in my church community they see me in the right places and they think I'm okay, rather than Jesus, who knows my heart. Now there's a there's a, a critical question here that in some ways is unanswerable, but we're going to have a go. <laughs> Why did Judas do it? Why did Judas, after seeing all, seeing so close to Jesus and seeing all that Jesus taught, all the way he behaved, all the miracles that were there, why did he still reject Jesus? Reject Jesus in a relational sense, but reject Jesus' message. And we don't get a complete answer with this. It's not some psychological text that opens up his inner soul. But there are some indications there a little bit with it. There's a general one there with it that all of the disciples were disappointed in Jesus. There was an expectation that they had had that a Messiah would come and put the world to right. And we want that too, don't we? We want somebody to come and sort out this world... Sort out this country, sort out those annoying people in my life, some of whom live in my house, sort out my house, and then maybe lastly, if all of those things are sorted out around me, then maybe I'll be okay. And Jesus tips this all up the other way. I mean, he tipped up all sorts of things in this upside down kingdom. You know, he started talking about, well, the, the first to last. You, you, you want to have some sort of power or recognition? I tell you what, go to the, the, the lowliest place at the table. You, you, you want to know what, what, what love is? You, you start to serve. Get down on your, your knees and wash people's feet, right? He tipped all of these things upside down. But one of the things that he tipped upside down was this, was he said, it starts with your heart. This is the parable of the soils, right? We'll come back to that. He said, my word needs to find fertile soil to grow and develop. And when it develops within the individual person, and then the individual person out of that changed heart moves into community spaces, then it's more likely that you will see change. It's not a guarantee, but you're more likely to see. It. So it shifts the way that it works. Now, we, we can be no different. We think, I'll be okay Everything will be all right in my world if, if God will just sort the world out. It doesn't work like that. It works up around the other way. And so we have this expectation and Judas and the other disciples had it and it starts off with a little bit maybe of disappointment and then it moves to frustration and in Judas's case, it moved to bitterness. He became an enemy of Jesus and plotted then against him. And maybe he had some other purpose, we don't know. Again, maybe he thought, well, if I could sell him over there, and maybe Jesus would then realize his mistake of what he was doing wrong. And, uh, and, and maybe you know he would then start doing the right message that he should give now that he's got all this popularity, but Jesus stays this course. Maybe, maybe it was when Jesus washed his feet that Judas went, oh, he's just not getting this. I don't know. We don't know. But the point is for us is we need to take Jesus on his terms, not on our terms. We don't have to write the world before our heart is right. Our heart comes right. Amazingly, it changes how we see the world. There was obviously some degree of desire for power and riches associated with it. Would you turn with me just back a chapter to John chapter 12? We see a couple of contrasts here in the Gospels. Judas is contrasted with two characters. One of the contrasts is here. John chapter 12, Jesus anointed at at Bethany. um, And uh, it's six days before the Passover. And Jesus comes to Bethany and um, at the home of Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus. And um, it says there in verse 3, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth how much? A year's wages. I don't know what wage you're on, right? But it's a a whole year's worth of money into a bottle of perfume to pour on Jesus. One off. You don't get it back and recycle it. It's done and dusted and gone. Verse 6, so John's giving a commentary. Interestingly, when Matthew tells this story, he says all of the disciples actually found that hard. And then John, writing the later gospel, says that it was actually Judas Iscariot in particular who who verbally raises it and says this. And then in verse 6, he says, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used, to, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So this isn't, you know, again, an indication of his motive, but it shows that underneath whatever was driving his motive turned into him actually having um, being a thief, and it also uh, turned him into somebody who could not see the beauty of, of something that was being done to Jesus. See, when Mary puts that perfume on Jesus... She's not doing it to garner favor with Jesus in some sense. Jesus to her was the end point. The love that Jesus showed to, to Mary was the beautiful thing. And she wanted to give something back in the beauty that Jesus had displayed toward her in her relationship. Judas saw Jesus as a means to an end. Jesus saw. Judas saw Jesus as somebody who, who should be used to get something that he thought about the way that Jesus should act and the way that he should work. And again, this is something for us. This is a warning for us. Do I see Jesus as somebody that I use to gain something? Because I'm in a dangerous place if I do that. And we all do that to some degree. There's something in there that we have expectation of him. Or do I stop enough to gaze in wonder and just appreciate Jesus for who he is and what he's done. That's why we worship and not just on Sundays. All right, let's keep going. Now we're going to go to Matthew 27. So if you've got your fingers still there, let's go. By the way, while you're turning there, did you notice there that it actually says twice sainted Satan entered Judas? So, one was back when he was going to the chief priests. Um, and then the second time was actually at the Lord's Supper. And so we can see there, Satan's moving in and out of this drama that's going along. And he, he, he doesn't go into some unwilling heart. There's something that's shifted in Judas, there's something that's wrong in Judas's heart. And Satan is looking for an opportune time. And there's an opportune time for him. When he's going to negotiate with these chief priests to betray Jesus, and there's another opportune time, which I'll talk a little bit more, when Jesus hands this piece of bread to him, we're going to use that as our closing metaphor with it. So let's have a look here, Matthew 27, about what happens. So, so Jesus, Judas betrays Jesus with it with a kiss, and then Jesus goes off and is condemned to die. Matthew 27 says this: When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned. He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. That's tough. I don't want to talk about suicide today, but I I, I do want to do an elective sometime in the next few weeks on it. I think it's a very, very important topic (laughs) in our our world today. I just want to focus on something there. It It says there that Judas was remorseful, but it doesn't say that he was repentant. And we need somehow to clarify what those two words are meaning in that space. He felt an emotional guilt for what he had done. But then, um, the same thing that Peter, you know, it says Peter denied him, and then he went off and he bawled his eyes out, right? So so there's this place there where there's some sort of degree of sorrow. There's some sort of degree of guilt of something that I have done. There's something that I have done wrong with it. And they use the term here, remorse. And I want to contrast it with the word repentance. And I want to go to 2 Corinthians 7. And Paul here contrasts these two two things. He said there's something called godly sorrow. He said godly sorrow brings repentance. That godly sorrow is a sorrow that I have done something wrong before God. I'm sorry for what I've done, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sorry that I got caught. You know, the old celebrity, and they go, oh, you know, um, I'm, so, I'm so sorry that you were hurt by my behavior. <laughs> you heard that one? What are they doing in that sorrow? They're not taking any ownership of what they've done. They're saying, something wrong with you because you're so sensitive about being upset by what I've done, right? There's a million ways of saying sorrow. A few of them are wonderful, but we've learned a large number of ways of saying sorry without actually being sorry. You see there's a godly sorrow that brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves what no regret. And there's a worldly sorrow that brings death. And someone tried to illustrate it a little bit is this, this worldly kind of way that I look that I, I, you know Judas sort of looked at it and goes, "Man, I thought I was a good dude, and, and I've gone and betrayed this innocent person. What do I do with that?" I still want to think of myself as a good person and so he internalizes this thing and he goes back and he throws the pieces of silver down back into the priest of where he's got it from but but there's this inner kind of wrestling with him and he won't go to the place that is so open to him to receive what he needs he won't go to Jesus Christ and say I am sorry to you for what I have done and so we can spend a lot of time feeling sorry for, for getting caught out. or we, we, we try and blame everybody else for what happened as to why I did a behavior that I did in a certain way. And the Bible says, wrong. You start with repentance. You start in a place where you say, there's something actually wrong with me, and I need to change God. That's where repentance comes in. And the contrast there is given, secondly, with Peter. That Peter, even though he cries his eyes out, he returns to Jesus and he's able to be forgiven because repentance takes place. I want to return to John, it's actually John 13, says 21, but you know. Because there's something very interesting in that moment when... Jesus dips this piece of bread and gives it to Judas. And we're going to close with this thought. And it's part of the Passover meal called the correct, if I'm saying it correctly. And it's a part of the meal where the host takes a piece of bread and they have a bowl here. And this bowl is made up of a sauce with bitter herbs in it. And this, this bitter sauce, they, they, sometimes they eat bitter herbs, and in this instance they take bitter sauce, is, is representative of sin. Sin is bitter, right? It's not how it's meant to be, and it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. And so they eat this, and they, they're reminded of what sin is. But in this particular part of what they call the correct, the, the host Breaks the piece of bread. And we've just taken that, isn't it? What does the broken piece of bread represent? Jesus' body. And here's Jesus with Judas sitting right there. Imagine you're Judas at this moment. And Jesus takes this bit, which he says represents my body, which is about to be broken for you. And what does he do? He dips it in the bitter sauce. Can you see what's happening here? Jesus is saying, I'm going to go. I'm going to take your sin on me. I'm going to go into that place of bitterness. I'm going to take my, your sin onto me. And he dips it in here. And the, what happens in this is, is when you dip it in, you take it out, and the host can choose who he gives this piece of bread to. And, and it's, a, it's an honor to be given this piece of bread. It says, I care about you and I love you. Jesus does this to Judas, the one who's going to betray him. And, and I think what it says is this, there's always a way back. There's always a way back. And it, the way back, though, is through through Jesus' body. It's through Jesus dipping into that place of our sin and taking it on him. And so he hands over a piece of bread to Judas. And the reason why Satan enters him in that point Is because Judas rejects the offer of Jesus. We're never to do that. I don't know where you're at, where you've been in your life, where you are at this moment, but I know this Jesus is still handing over that piece of bread. And there's always a way back. And he's saying, I don't want you to fall away. I want your faith, whatever happens, to come back to this place, come back to this moment. Come back to this event of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection because that's our place of hope. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this picture here. Thank you for the in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have such a beautiful hope. Not built on our behavior, things we've done right, Actually, it's because of the things that we have done wrong. Lord, I just pray for everybody here in this room as they've seen this image of Jesus Christ offering a piece of bread to them, picture of his body broken, done for us, that wherever we're at, Lord, that we would long to be in relationship with you. There's someone here today that needs to repent, Lord, Would you help them to do that? Would you soften their hearts and do that towards you this day, knowing that their only place of hope is in you and they put their faith so strongly in you? We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.